What's good, everybody? I'm John Zastrzemski, host of New York, New York with JJ, the first podcast on the Ringer and Spotify dedicated to you, the New York sports fan. We've got episode three nights a week, plus bonus episodes whenever news breaks. So make sure you follow the show on Spotify. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all in one page. Plus, start betting on the Explorer page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gambling. Please visit theringer.com backslash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com backslash RG. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes... You know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Group chat. This is the special edition, the Thanksgiving edition of Group Chat. We're doing a little potluck action. Big Waz, Rob Mahoney, gentlemen, thank you for joining me on this festive occasion. The greatest holiday of the year. Inarguable. Is it? Inarguable. Is it? It's hands <laughs> down. It's hands down. It's, it's not completely, even close. It's completely centered around food and comfort. I don't know what more you could possibly food, want. Comfort, family, you know, uh, yeah, it's the best. I mean, I might argue that those are aspects of every holiday. And what we have with Thanksgiving mm. is just dinner. <laughs> you know? like, is mm. there anything special in addition to that? I mean, Christmas is not about family. It's about, you know, Commerce. consumerism and <laughs> yeah. price gouging and $700 flights to New York. Or maybe I'm just talking about my own mm. personal problems and not the problems of Christmas itself. I sure. just want to show up and eat or make my food and eat without the pressure of having to buy other people gifts. Oh, that's what I want. God. Okay, that's fair. I love this uh, this egalitarian ball finds energy style of uh, holiday tidings we have here to open up here. So this is good. <laughs> um, all right, so this is the potluck. We've done this once before uh, a couple years ago, but the shtick here is that everybody is bringing to the metaphorical table one team they want to discuss, one player, and then one take. Let's start with the team portion. Uh, and let's start, Waz, with your man on the New York streets, uh, just POV on the New York Knickerbockers. Things have been a little dicey lately, but they did win last night. So where are you on everything? Where do you want to start with them? <sighs> I hate to be the bearer of bad news, guys. After a 5-1 and one start, I'm basically convinced that the Knicks are a playing team. They're six in the conference right now. There's at least four teams behind them that I think are going to leapfrog them. Sixers, Bucks, obviously, the Hawks. 
Um, and I think I'm missing one more in there who I think is going to leapfrog them. But, like, I, you know, they're 10 and 8 right now. They're about to play Brooklyn, the Hawks. They got a crazy schedule coming up. They're about to be something like 10 and 12. It's, I, I just, you know, they're playing as well as they can, right? I think they updated, upgraded their talent in the offseason. They're a more well-rounded offensive unit this year, but the defensive magic has kind of run out. Uh, they're 17th in the um, defensive efficiency right now. That's not going to cut it for a group that relies upon Julius Randle for consistent high-end offense. I just I just see it as a, a playing team. I know Knicks fans, because I know a lot of them, were expecting a lot more, especially after the way they came out the gate, but... I'm not seeing it for them. And, you know, much has been made about the starting lineup just stinking up the joint in recent weeks. I think that'll improve itself with minor tweaks. RJ's in a horrible shooting slump, which, again, another thing I think will even itself out. I don't think he's going to shoot 31% from three all season. I just think the Knicks are... You know, a run of the Middle Eastern Conference team, they'll fight for that 10th seed and right. move on. Let's talk about the disparity, though, because this is the big talking point for probably about a week now here. Basically, the plus minus and eyeballs, quite frankly, have shown that the bench is a huge plus. The starting lineup is a huge negative. Rob, is there any like specific thing going on there that's leading to that? Is it specific players or is this just, I don't know, what's going on there? Well, I think this is where those two conversations come together that Waz mm. outlined. There's the defense not holding up this season. There's the starters not holding up this season. These are one in the same in a lot of ways. And it, it's a case where, you know, guys like us are on podcasts or writing articles about how, oh, this offense first team needs to level out, get more defense. This defense first team needs to get more scores. It kind of feels like they zagged a little too hard in their starting lineup toward trying to get offensive talent but they haven't actually gotten the benefit of that offensive talent. Like Kemba has not delivered in the way that he needs to, which puts a lot of pressure on Evan Fournier all of a sudden. So if those guys aren't scoring for you, we know they're not defending for you. And that's where that that opening five against the best players in the NBA just has not been able to stop anybody. Well, here's my question, because Kemba among all of the starting players has been the biggest negative. He's a minus 12.4 net rating. Uh, I think it's worst among all of the regulars on the Knicks. Uh, is it as simple as just demoting Kemba either to the bench or maybe even to just like spot duty, maybe to third point guard duty? Because it's not like they don't have options. Derrick Rose didn't play last night against the Lakers, but he does have a stabilizing effect for this team. Can he be in the starting lineup and then can Emmanuel quickly come off the bench or can quickly start? Um, um, and and Rose still come off the bench. Like I, I don't know. I, I feel like there's still a move here before we can say that this unit as a like as in a whole, all five parts of this is a, the problem. I think there might be a move here with a different coach, but <laughs> yeah. Tibbs he likes his old guys. He's gonna play the proven vets. He's not gonna start Emmanuel quickly over Kemba Walker. That like. It'll be a cold day in hell before that happened, right? And so I don't think the fixes are there. And then, of course, there's his just devotion to always playing a traditional big man, right? Like, you're never going to get Randall at the five. So 
Maybe if Randall was playing around a lot more spacing, him not making those really tough shots that he made all of last season wouldn't be such a problem. But I don't see Tibbs changing the way that he plays. Uh, they're going to play two bigs at all times, and they're going to play the vets. Well, the only sure. caveat to that is that the only thing that Tom Thibodeau loves more than a veteran <laughs> is a veteran named Derrick Rose. I, and so exactly you, what I was going to say. Could say yeah. Quickly, I mean, we can mm. judge just based off last season how long <laughs> it took for quickly to even get consistent minutes. Right. Sure. Was Which was a little crazy. Yeah. Crazy considering... And they brought the, in Derrick Rose as competition for those minutes mid-season. Yes. <laughs> so I, I could see Rose getting that promotion at some point, but I think this is where it gets a little sticky, politically speaking. With a veteran guy, with a proven guy... 20 games into a season, I think it would be a hard sell to pull that plug unless you're ready to just cut bait on that relationship. But I think they're going to need Kemba in some capacity. And I think they're going to need to play a, a, a wait and see, a longer game to see if maybe something with the starting lineup can come together. Yeah, and Kemba did leave money on the table, op- got out of his deal with the Thunder, specifically to come to the Knicks. He signed a, a relatively bargain deal, so I wonder if there was some sort of agreement made. But I guess that's it's a good window to talk about the other guys in this starting unit because as Waz kind of alluded to, R.J. Barrett has just been brutal. It seemed like he was ready to turn the corner. He had like three really good games where it seemed Dropped like... Dropped at 35 against the Pelicans. That was nice. Yeah. <laughs> and then we found out that maybe it was just like the competition there because over his past nine he's shooting about 30 percent from the floor on still decent volume on 13 shots a game so he's still getting fed but he's just not shooting well enough do we think like i don't know do we think that there's something up with his shot do we think like it was just fool's gold this like the flashes we've seen for him this season and maybe even last season um what do we think i mean you follow guys that are covering the team like our guy um Fred Katz over at The Athletic and Fred's just like, look, he's taking the same shots. He's just not making it. So it feels like that's something that's going to correct itself. I don't think he's this horrible a shooter. But, you know, we we had him sort of taking the quote-unquote leap, even though, you know, people in our jobs make that mistake with a lot of players basically every single year, every week, damn there, we make that mistake of being like, has such and such turned the corner yet? And it's like, <laughs> nah, it was like two games against the Pelicans and the Thunder. And, you know, he looked like a freaking world beater. I, I'm not too worried about Barrett, right? Like by all indications, he's somebody who thinks the game, who works his ass off on his game. I think he's going to get too serviceable in all those shooting numbers. Um, I liked what I've seen out of Toppin in spots, right, this season. He's clearly way better than he was last year, if not, you know, some obvious starting level NBA power forward. I I think they still got some stuff in. What we've been saying is that they're counting on being able to trade for a star and – Some of their young guys are supposed to be the enticing pieces. I think those pieces are still enticing enough. The foundation is still there. But, yeah, the next four games, just because I mentioned it, Phoenix at home, at Atlanta, at Brooklyn, home against the Bulls. That's four straight losses (laughs) the way I'm seeing it. This really does feel like the most whelming team in the league. Like they are a (laughs) middling performance. Most nights you catch them. 
whether it's the starters who are underperforming, whether it's the right, you know, the right guys getting the wrong amount of minutes. And something that just kind of feels off to me is the Julius Randle experience in the sense that he's starting to play more and more like an all NBA player. And I don't mean that as a compliment. Like he's taking it upon himself (laughs) to will them out of situations that he's just not capable of doing. And this is a team that needs to rely on the backbone of its defense, that needs its ball movement, that needs its spacing. I mean, it, it was it was nice to see him hit so many, you know, step back, fall away jumpers last season in desperate, you know, desperate situations. But I that's not what I would be banking my franchise on. You know what that reminds me of, Rob? Every time I get on a dance floor, I think I'm Puff Daddy, but the results, <laughs> they don't match up uh, at all. But your, kind of, your, your first team all dance in your head. That's the In my head, thing. yeah, absolutely. What kind of moves do you got, man? Are we, are we talking chicken wing or uh, nah, butterfly? <laughs> a lot of what Puff does is a lot of the shoulder stuff, head bobbing. It's, it's mm. a lot. A lot of footwork. It, it's a lot. People can look up Puff. On the internet, a lot of moves of puff dancing. Um, I, I I don't generally reach those high marks, but god damn it, I try. <laughs> I want to see the game tape of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I you know what? It's funny with the Knicks because all of this sounds very critical, but when I, th- I think about it in the big picture, They're right where it's supposed to be. Yeah, it just seems like the expe- expectation changes changed, but the team didn't. Like appreciably change the talent or whatever is going on here. Uh, it just seemed like ten games over five hundred last year. The one game over five hundred this year. It doesn't. If you were to pull back and look at the names on the stat sheet as we did going into last season, say, eh, I don't know. It just seems like this is a little bit more about expectations influencing how we're perceiving this. Yeah, and we can't have it both ways, right? We can't say the Knicks need to practice patience and don't do the Knicks thing and sign some washed-up dude at a ridiculous number thinking that it's going to, you know, catapult you to the seventh seed. Like, they haven't done that. So we can't kill them for being patient when in the past we crushed them for these ridiculous, quote-unquote, win-now moves that never, ever panned out. Yeah, it's okay for them to be a play-in team. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And especially if you kind of bide your time, wait and see. And one of these teams above you is going to get a major injury, is going to have some tough luck, going to hit a long road trip where they go three and six. I think it's fine for a team in the next position to play that and, and and wait for those possibilities because there there aren't a lot of like long game options to develop here other than Barrett. I guess you could lean on Toppin in that regard, but I kind of think he... He probably will wind up being more or less the type of player he's been, just more effective, you know, like an energy big versus some guy you're really counting on on a night by night basis. Uh, so you you really are you need to stabilize in this range and figure out like what is our path going forward with this group, with Randall, with kind of what we've outlined here. I think there's something workable. It just may not be like top three seed workable. Yeah, I guess that's the reason for pessimism is when you think about what the next step is here. Like, what is their pathway to being an upper echelon East team? Uh, and often the the conversation ultimately becomes about how do you trade for a star? And, yeah. and like, I, I just it becomes it's, it's a thing that happens with every team, but I think it's going to happen more so with the Knicks just because this is what the Knicks fans do and this is what the New York media does. Uh, it seems like, Waz, correct me if I'm wrong, the temperature is still like, oh, well, we're happy to have competitive basketball, but I do wonder if the flip gets switched here soon uh, and sooner than than most teams because it's New York. 
It's funny how it works with Nick fans. Like, no matter how many times they get bopped over the head with a baseball bat from this team, they get back up and, you know, they keep on trucking. After last season, which was a surprise, right? Like, nobody thought they were going to be somebody's fourth seed. Nobody thought that. Cinderella run. Obviously, they get their heads bashed in the first round by a far superiorly talented Hawks team. They come out the gates again, five and one. They upgraded the roster in the offseason. So it's like, all right, here we go again. We're right back in the mix for the four and the five seed. This is like, nah. You're not. And I think I've gotten that sense from the Knicks fans. Obviously, this is all anecdotal. But the Knicks fans in my life, their expectations is being like, I don't know why I let them do this to me. Right? Like, get your hopes up. And ultimately, this is a mediocre squad. And they're playing to their abilities. Justin, do you want to walk us into another fan base that has been bopped on the head repeatedly year after year? <laughs> I know. What a, what a perfect segue here. Speaking of uncertain futures, uh, also, uh, the Sacramento Kings, who Wolf. have just recently fired coach Luke Walton, uh, he was 68-93 and 93 over his two-plus seasons there, which is among the better records uh, in Kings history, which really says it all there. Wow. Uh, Alvin Gentry steps in <laughs> for the millionth time in order to take over a team with, with, with no real hope for the future, although I think he's still clinging to hope that he can get that job full-time. We'll see. Um, I mean, where do we even begin here? This team is a mess and it's weird. It's that like we've gotten to the point now where every it's really hard to knock a team for just like doing objectively stupid things. I think the league as a, as a whole has become smarter, like in part because I wonder if like social media is just like shamed enough uh, high level executives or owners to like do things a certain way. And so like it very rarely do you have a team like the Kings where the owner is clearly pushing for playoffs, playoffs, playoffs when the roster says otherwise. I guess the Pistons uh, of the Stan Van Gundy era were uh, of a similar type, but the Kings are, it just seems like they're living in, di in different worlds where they're just not embracing reality. And I don't know where to go here because even though they've done the tear it down, we've brought in all these high draft picks. I don't see a star on this roster. And I don't see a pathway necessarily to trading those guys for a star. So it's kind of a mess. I think you're right that teams are making fewer dumb moves, like objectively dumb moves than they used to. But the trade-off for that is you get teams like the Kings who just got kind of mired in their own inaction. Like, if you want to fire Luke Walton, and I think there was grounds to do that, do it in the offseason. Do it at a time where you can actually reset your team. Or, if you don't want to fire Luke Walton, make some roster moves because last season, this was the worst defense in NBA history. So, <laughs> if you're not going to change your coach... And you're not going to change your roster, save for drafting Davion Mitchell, basically, bringing in a couple fringe role players. What are we expecting to be different here? And so when you, when you get stuck in that framework, that's dumb. That's inexplicable. Like, that's, that's indefensible in terms of if, if that's what you think of your team, that we should, be we should be so much better this season that we're going to justify firing our coach midway. Why? I, I just don't understand how that stuff all checks out with each other. Then, of course, there's the Marvin Bagley of it all and the guy who sorry Kings fans you drafted over Luka Doncic mm -hmm. okay um, the treatment of that guy not to say that he deserves some special treatment but I don't understand how you love a guy enough to draft him over Luka Doncic and you know three years later you're basically treating him like the stepchild 
of the organization. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And to me, that speaks to a leadership problem. And that goes all the way to the top. Uh, Vivek Renadive has no idea what the fuck he's doing. He's been an awful owner. And, you know, I love the synergy of the Kings firing their millionth coach and Alvin Gentry getting his millionth um, interim coaching <laughs> job. It's like just beautiful asymmetry right there. If I'm using asymmetry right, I'm sure people on Twitter will let me know. <laughs> it's actually surprising that that Gentry had never had a King stint before. <laughs> Like he's done a world tour of all of the worst franchises, Detroit, the Pelicans, the Clippers, yep. but here he is. He's really, he's really like completing the set. Yeah. I just think they're rudderless at the top. I just think Vivek and Vlade have mismanaged this at every single level. Even just Luke Walton as a hire in and of itself, right? Like this thirsty, oh, we want to be just like the Warriors shit that they always doing. It's just like, Bruh, Luke Walton is not why the Warriors are the Warriors. They're the Warriors because they drafted Klay Thompson, Steph Curry, and Draymond Green, my man. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. The gentry part of this is pretty funny, too. I, I don't know if you guys saw Sam Amick's report on this stuff, uh, but he pretty much suggested outright that Gentry took this job because Luke Walton was probably going to get fired. You know? <laughs> yeah, Which it's a veteran says, move. I yeah. mean, it, again, <laughs> you got to respect it. He's been along a very long time, and uh, that's that's the type of move of someone who knows how to to keep getting those jobs, even though it doesn't seem like someone's going to hire him out, right? Um, I mean, here's the big question. Let's say that let's just assume that the goal of making the play in is even something they, they they should aspire to. Is this the type of team that can, with the right leadership or the right vibes check here from from our friend Alvin Gentry, can do that? Because I look at the roster and I'm just befuddled. Because on the one hand, they have so many guards, most of whom can't really play together because the mixing and the matching just doesn't work. And I think the even bigger question is De'Aaron Fox because they're paying him now on a max contract like he is the star of this team. And if anything, he's taking a step back this year. And I don't know if there's a pathway to him ever taking the leap that he needs to in order to really make sense of what's going on there. I'm a bit of a Fox truther, which, you know, I got to admit my own bias. I watched him come into Staples and just fish fillet Kawhi Leonard and Paul George one time where they couldn't stay in front of him. He was finishing over Zubac. He had the floater working. He had to step back. It was just like, wow. He's fun. He's a blur. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, this is the guy that... Everybody thought he could potentially be, but he's never put together these consistent runs. I think he's shooting close to a career low from three right now, which again, as you mentioned, Justin, is a regression. I'm still a fan of the talent. Um, he might be one of these guys who is just changing scenery now. You know, at a certain point, you spend enough time in Sacramento and the stink gets on you, right? Uh and I think this is pervasive league-wide. There's an idea that Sacramento is a toxic place. Agents don't want to send their players there. Players see it as a backwater, mismanaged situation. I remember, man, I remember talking to an NBA player once, and Masai Ujiri came up, and 
He's like, I can't stand that motherfucker. And I said, why? He's like, he ruined my damn career. I was like, what did he do? Like, you know, I'm thinking, I don't know, like he did something fucked up. He was like, he traded me to Sacramento. <laughs> I was like, wow. So it like, it kind of shows you how people view the Kings. Like, it's just a horror show. Well, I mean, what do we think about Fox specifically? Do we do we think like he's the type of talent Rob that could overcome this, the toxicity, the the swamp uh, out there in Sacramento? Well, I mean, I don't think the Kings necessarily were operating under the assumption that De'Aaron Fox is a superstar prospect. He's just kind of the best prospect they have. He could be a star. He could be an All Star level player. Maybe you luck out and he's even better than that. But he was a guy you roll the dice with because he has that talent. He has that speed and that ability to read the floor. He has the ability to shift gears. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on with this game that if you're a team like the Kings, you should absolutely want to invest in and see see if he can be that guy for you. That said, you know, Charks wrote about this this week and zeroed in on something interesting with Fox, which is I think part of the problem is the sense that he's like not enough of a threat with the ball to be a dominant offensive player. And he doesn't really have enough of an off-ball game to not be a dominant offensive player. And that puts him in such an awkward space. And you see a lot of guards fall into this. And over the course of their career, some grow out of it, some don't. Some find ways to be better cutters or spot shooters or whatever it is. We'll have to see with Fox. I think a change of scenery could be good, but there's only so much you can fix when you're not shooting well. You don't have the ability to impact the game when you don't have the ball. That's a, that's a tough combination to sell for a potential like contending type team. Yeah, and that's why it was questionable at best to draft two guards in a row after you've made this big commitment to De'Aaron Fox, just because it seems like they've compounded the problem where now he's not touching the ball as much as he did in the past. And while Terry's Halliburton seems like he's probably at his best in an ancillary role, like being more of a connector or a glue guy, uh, but he seems like almost scared to shoot at times, even though he is a good shooter. And so uh, I I don't know that that doesn't seem like an ideal fit because you want someone playing off of Fox to be able to knock down those shots off of kickouts. But if it's buddy healed, who can hit those kickouts, then all of a sudden you're giving away too much on the defense. And as we covered before, that's a problem. And if you want to correct that and you want to put more defense on the court with Davion Mitchell, well, there's another guy who needs the ball in his hand, still developing as an offensive player. And so it's just, where are the solutions here? And then like to get into like the whole roster, like where are the wings in order to help solve this solution? They had to put Mo Harkless back into the starting lineup against the Sixers. And it's just like, uh, like, like, it, there's just a lot of like compounding issues and it seems like it's going to take like a couple years even to sort this mess out. And it's just like, it, I don't know. I don't, I don't see a clear path to doing this. Um, I guess one thing we should talk about is whether or not they can maybe aggregate some of these guys and swing a trade. But like, obviously Ben Simmons is is the prime candidate for that. But if you're the Sixers and you watch Tyrese Maxey cook and in particular cook the Kings the other night, uh, how much better is like even a Fox plus, let's say a buddy healed than having a guy like Maxey who's on a rookie contract and is already burgeoning in his own right. Can we talk about that Sixers game for just one second? I yes, just want to read to you the starting five for the Philadelphia <laughs> 76ers in a game in which they That's beat crazy. the Kings. Tyrese Maxey, Bench player cool. behind Ben yeah. Simmons, under ideal circumstances anyway. Furkan <laughs> Korkmaz, bench player behind Seth Curry. Uh, Matisse Theibel, bench player behind Danny Green. George Niang, bench player behind Tobias Harris. Andre Drummond, bench player behind Joel Embiid. Five <laughs> reserves. The one it was game, literally their bench unit. Yeah, Literally the bench unit. The game immediately after your coach is fired, and they come in and roast you. 
I, I don't well, know that it could be thing, more damning than that. The crazy thing about that game was they were up for most of the game, and then in the fourth quarter, they just completely fell flat. It was like they forgot how to play basketball. And I'm just like, what is going on here? That's a checked out team. Um, yes. By the way, Matisse Tybo, he's a starter level player. Come on, don't do the Haitian like that. Bro. <laughs> I'm not no, saying but, I'm, but it's he doesn't start for them. Yeah, he doesn't start. No, but that's that's kind of the point. And then if you're the Kings, you know, Ben Simmons and his people saying there's only three teams in California. Uh, <laughs> you want to trade for that guy? I, I don't know. At least he's under contract, man. That's what they really need. They need guys under contract because that's the only way they're going to stay put for a while. <laughs> Maybe Damian Lillard, who knows? Uh, all right, let's move along here to a team that I think, uh, Rob, we haven't talked about this before, but I think this is going to be a more optimistic one. Uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves, who riding high on a four-game win streak. Is that right? Somehow, some way, <laughs> Minnesota Timberwolves are winners of four straight. And I would say, you know, the king, really, they are the king's greatest competition for that last play in spot. It's fucking sad. Okay, yeah, but continue. Um, and what I wanted to talk about with the Wolves specifically is their defense up to seventh in defensive rating, really within a few tenths of a point of being like in the top five, which is incredible with this group of personnel. They play really small. A lot of guys on this in this rotation who are like 6'4 or smaller. Carl Towns, who is not anybody's idea of an all-defensive center, and yet they've made it work. And some of that is just because they've completely reworked their scheme in the middle of this season. They were coming out, as they have many years previously, with Towns in like a pretty hard drop. And now they have him Basic, they're basically taking the Jokic approach with Towns, which is we're going to bring him up to the level of the screen. We're going to be right. more aggressive. We're going to scramble. And it's really working pretty well for them in a way that I think you have to at least reconsider what they could be. And that's what this stretch has been. It's been a, a nice clarification of where the Wolves stand in the Western Conference order. They, they've lost all these good teams. They've beat all these bad teams. I think we're getting a good sense of kind of where they fall in the middle of things. Yeah, and I know people like to roll their eyes at Patrick Beverly and whatever his impact might be on a given team. I think he really helps them in one, the physicality toughness department, right? Like I get that he's five foot 11 and you know, 160 pounds, but he just brings an intensity to what they're trying to do that. Let's just face it. Carl Towns has been a lot of amazing things. Intense and physical and defensive-minded is not one of those things. So I think in a, in the lineup day that bears it out with Beverly in there, they're just a much better team, more well-rounded. And I'm so happy that they are playing more aggressively on defense because Carl Towns is some plotting dude. Like, he has pretty decent foot speed for his position. He should be able to meet the ball handler in the screen and roll at the level, right? And be able to scramble back behind that and be a decent enough deterrent at the rim that guys aren't just cascading to the damn basket like it's a freaking conga line. You know what I mean? So it's it's borderline a miracle that they're top 10 in defense right now. I think the offenses, they have so much offensive talent. Like, there's going to be a way for that to find itself. Obviously, one of the easy fixes that we've all seen on the internet, Carl Towns needs to shoot more. Uh, I just think that they're in a good spot. I think we were pretty bullish on them before the season started, so I'm not surprised that they're playing this well. 
Yeah. In a lot of ways, Pat Bev is kind of like the NSFW version of what Jimmy Butler was supposed to do for this team. <laughs> like he's not outright questioning Carl Towns's manhood, like on a daily basis, but he is providing like the, the, the defensive acumen and also just like the grit and the toughness that I think this team needs. It's a really interesting decision because they have these three offensive I guess I'll say stars, although I don't know if D'Angelo or even Edwards are, are at that point right now, but offensive dynamos, whatever you want to say, and then just popped in to just like junk it up defenders in him in Beverly and Vanderbilt. And it's a really interesting decision. It's paid dividends. I don't know how long it's going to work, especially as the, the schedule gets a little tougher. I should mention the four game win streak was against the Kings, Spurs, Grizzlies and Pelicans, which like doesn't get any a more Charmin than that. Um, but you know, it's working for now. I think, that, I think to Waz's point about the offense, they're 18th in offense, which is really surprising considering uh, the three guys that they have running that offense. I just look out there. I'm like, man, I really wish D'Angelo Russell was literally anybody else because this team with Edwards and just the way he attacks so damn hard, like mini Russell Westbrook, just more like with positivity as opposed to like just anger for every human on earth. Uh, plus Carl Towns is just a magnetic, awesome combination. And then Russell just kind of gets in the way of that a lot of time. I, I They could spin him into some sort of like three and D wing type. I think this team would make a lot more sense. When Edwards has settled in really well, too, where he's finding that balance between, as you're saying, attacking really hard, but also letting Towns cook, letting Russell do some stuff. Like he, he, He's gotten rid of the two or three possessions, or at least whittled them down from earlier in the season where everyone on the court was kind of rolling their eyes a little bit at him, <laughs> right. going ISO, yeah. uh, which is important. And I think part of the reason, to your point, Justin, how they've plugged in these dirty work guys into the starting lineup and it's worked, it's not just the starting lineup. Like When those three guys are on the floor, as long as there's some combination of Beverly, McDaniels, Vanderbilt, and Beasley, in any combination, basically, it's working. That's a great sign for the core of that team. Now, it, it doesn't say great things about the depth of this team that when you go to any two of their, again, quote-unquote stars, things tend to fall apart a little bit, or God forbid, one of them, things really fall apart. But the fact that when their best players are on the floor, they're a competitive good team, that, that's a great place for this franchise to be. Yeah, yeah, and I just love watching Edwards play. Uh, totally. When he has it going, when the step back is going and he's rising from like 26 feet and just splashing threes and defenses have to react to that. And like you said, the reckless abandon that he goes to the rim is crazy. Uh, and I think he's just getting better at figuring out just where the creases are, where the vulnerabilities are, and attacking those, just doing more probing, more patience. He's clearly taking a step. Obviously, it hasn't reflected in like, all right, he's freaking Kobe Bryant now, but he's moving in the right direction. And I think letting him take more ownership of what the offense needs to be can only bode well for them in the future. I know every athlete says that they just need to be aggressive in order to fix all of their problems with Edwards. <laughs> that seems like it's actually the case because whenever he's aggressive, like good things happen. This episode is brought to you by hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. 
So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. Fuel up for game day and any day, really, at Sonic. For a limited time, you can get the new $1.99 Sonic Crispy Tender Wraps. And trust me, you don't want to miss out. A crispy chicken tender and bold flavors like hickory barbecue and cheesy Baja. Crisp lettuce and melty cheese that make the perfect bite. So go get yourself some TLC, some tender love and chicken, and buy a $1.99 Sonic Crispy Chicken Tender Wrap today. Tax not included. Limited time only at participated Sonic drive-ins. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Um, all right, let's flip now to our players we have here. We did our teams. Now we're bringing our players out. Let's call this the main course, shall we? Um, Rob, do you want to start here uh, with your guy, DeMar DeRozan? Yeah, I want to talk about one thing specifically with DeRozan because he's having an unbelievable season. We could go in a lot of different directions. But to me, the value of his kind of pit stop with the Spurs is the difference between settling and knowing your spots. He was a guy in Toronto who took a lot of tough shots, took a lot of long twos. I don't want to relitigate the entire analytics debate <laughs> oh, that has now man. spanned hundreds of years. Uh, so I don't really want to get into that so much. But the difference between him taking long twos in Toronto and setting guys up to work specifically to get to basically the free throw line area is just night and day. Like he can get to those shots whenever he wants because he has the handle for it. He has an A-plus setup game for a wing in terms of getting a defender moving one away, then throwing them into a screen, then going you know, in, in at a time or in a direction they don't expect uh, to get to his spots, to get into those zones on the floor where he is just hyper-efficient. Like He is so good in that intermediate range. And if you can, as any player, trim out some of that fat of taking the longer, longer contested twos and get into that space, it can just completely transform who you are as a player. And I feel like that's... If anything, that's kind of the value of ever playing for Greg Popovich in the Spurs is that as a franchise and a coaching staff that will make it very clear to you what your spots are, where you are strongest on the floor, and they can help get you there. And I don't think we see this version of DeMar without the Spurs version of DeMar. It's been really cool to watch him. One, and again, it's easy to say this because the Bulls are winning, right? Like they're winning at a clip that most people probably didn't expect them to. But I like that. Levine seems to be invested in DeRozan killing people. That's my favorite part about it is like as ball dominant as DeMar has been, Levine is fine with it and he's fine with picking his spots. Man, there was a game last week I was watching where Levine made like three straight threes off of pin downs. 
where they just set the down screen. He sprints to the freaking three-point line, catches and fires, right? Like, that doesn't take him getting the ball, probing the defense, pick and roll, figuring out where the help is coming from. He's just straight up getting a hard screen, sprinting to a spot and firing. And I love the ecosystem and the way that it's working. I think there was definitely a worry. I was one of those people that was like, is Levine going to be cool with a different shot distribution than was last year as far as his role in the offense, how much he touches it. It's the opposite. It seems like he's embracing it and is even better for it. And it allows him to be fresher down the stretch of the games when he might be called upon to do that kind of on-ball, you know, ball-dominant stuff. Yeah, I think the thing that we missed in their offseason acquisitions is just how ball movement friendly all of the guys that they brought in were. When What's you up? say we, I'm on the other side of the we, right? <laughs> were you positive on the Bulls offseason additions? We need to check the tape, but I feel like I was pretty, again, pardon the pun, but bullish on this whole situation. I w- listen, I was over the moon about Lonzo and Caruso because yeah. obviously I'm part of that hive. The DeMar thing, I was like, this feels like a funny move, but... I like DeMar. I always have, right? Like, if somebody can make tough shots, there's value for that in an NBA offense. It might not, you know, if that's the only thing you got, it might not take you far. But within the right context, that's super valuable. Right. I guess I'll use I statements here. I assumed (laughs) that... DeRozan, considering the playmaking progress he'd made in San Antonio, that he would need the ball more than he has, and and Levine would need the ball, and there would be a lot of clashes there. But when you look around this roster, there's just like a lot of willing passers, there, and they're really good about sharing it to the point where Sarah Sully wrote about DeMar DeRozan on our site today, uh, and she had a stat about how he DeRozan is getting assisted more than at any point in his career or at any point in a very long time, and I think that just speaks to just like the energy on this team and how everyone is getting fed, and I think. I think it's worked out. I think the other thing that's really interesting about this is how I don't know if Rosen has really like completely revamped his game. Like he definitely is shooting more threes. Like I'll spot up in the corner more. Like there's a little more of that, but it seems like they've just found a way to make that an advantage as opposed to a disadvantage. And you're starting to see this across the league where like, after a couple of years of this programmatic just layoffs and threes, maybe that like advantage doesn't exist anymore. Or, or at the very least, Rob, you wrote about this last postseason with Chris Middleton and Kevin Durant. Offenses are finding ways to empower mid-range shooters to where that's like that's an option again. At the very if you shoot it well enough, they're gonna keep feeding you those shots. And I also wonder if like maybe this the next switch has to be on defense, where it's like defenses are structured to take away the rim and the three-point line nowadays, and they're giving those shots, and maybe they need to find something a little bit more blended. Does that check out at all? Totally. And I, I think it, it speaks to what you were saying about DeRozan not exactly transforming his game. He's just kind of refined it in a way that helps him get to those spots even more effectively. It's just so tough to take away. And that's the reason why the Bulls have been so good in so many late close games so far this season. That's just an impossible thing for a lot of guys to guard, especially as more and more wings and even some fours, frankly, are running smaller and smaller are, you know, they may be athletic enough to contest DeMar, but they may not be strong enough to take the bumps from him along the way to, you know, be right there when he rises, you know, raises up. It's just a tough combination of attributes to guard. And I think Waz nailed it when it's, it's not just about DeMar, it's about him in context. Do you have enough stuff going on around him? Just like with Middleton, 
if Chris Middleton's playing with Giannis, the Chris Middleton thing works. Oh, if, so valuable. If you were asking Chris Middleton to be the alpha and omega of your offense, it seems like a, a recipe to be the 10th place, 10th place team in your conference, you know? So <laughs> this works. Like, And they haven't even had Vucevic for a lot of these games, but this combination of just the 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 playmaking you've been talking about, Justin, the, the pass passing mentality of the team, in addition to what they get from Levine, it, it's just such a nice... Nice blend. And I think we need to get comfortable right now. It's November 24th with the idea that DeRozan and Levine, I think there's a pretty good chance they end up both making all NBA teams this year. I think they are, they're wow. on that kind of trajectory. And, it, and there's enough injuries and down seasons where I think there's going to be a window for them. Speaking of down seasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, speaking of programmatic approaches, uh, Waz, <laughs> you want to talk yeah. about our next guy on this list? Yeah, it's James Harden. Um, and I know this is going to sound aggressive, but I think he's going to rue the day that he turned down that max extension. I just don't think he's a max guy. And it's not just the physical stuff. It's all of the, you know, the tax evasion that he's been doing throughout the course of his year, finding <laughs> all the tax loopholes in order to cheat the government out of, you know, building roads and stuff. But that's a different <laughs> podcast. <laughs> That's a different podcast. But no, but seriously, all of his shit is no longer being called. The leg kick out, gone. The off-ball captain hook where the hand that he's not dribbling with, he freaking grabs the guy's arm and then exaggerates contact, not getting called. The, the joint that he would do where he would show you the ball, then basically lift up both of his arms in a motion so that... While your arm was just standing there, he banged his arms into yours, not getting called anymore. And then you add that to how diminished he is physically, just off of injury, age, wear and tear, the natural stuff that happens to wing players who are very reliant upon their first step and how easily they can dribble past guys and I'm sorry, that's a recipe for James Harden not being as effective as he used to be. And you see it happening in the regular season. His numbers are way worse. Uh, you know, I saw a stat out there. James Harden, 40% of his attempts last year were at the cup or at the free throw line. That's down to 31. So that means he's just taking step backs. It's not like he's taking assess assisted um, twos and threes. Like, this guy's taking off the dribble shots 70% of the time now, that flips the math on his head in a way that is just like, this is not a use as useful a guy as he used to be. This is not, you know, back when Daryl Morey was, Daryl Morey was trolling us and saying that James Harden is the greatest offensive player in NBA history. He ain't that right. Like it's over for that. And then the playoffs, this shit's going to be worse. He's going to get even less calls, right? Like, he's going to be even more reliant upon step backs with guys all in his shirt. I just think he's going to regret not taking that deal. Uh, I still think he's probably a DeRozan type, Chris Paul type of deal, but he's not a guaranteed full max, full year type of guy at the rate that he's playing right now. See, that I don't know. I think we're all on board that he's diminished this season in a, in a pretty big way and in a very noticeable way. Let's but use the, I statements, Rob. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> I definitely feel that way. Uh, but the difference between an MVP 
like maybe the maybe a top right. two or like two Harden player last in the league, year. Harden last <laughs> year, and where he is now, I think there was enough room between those things for him to still be a max guy. Like when you think about the other players who've gotten max contracts because of circumstance, primarily. Like I mean, isn't Tobias Harris functionally on like a yeah. max or near yeah, max that's contract? A good point. So I think he's going to end up getting one one way or another. Now, that proposition is going to look very different when you're paying him $50 million a season to be that guy. You may not feel great about that anymore. Well, what Tobias Harris had that Harden might not is leverage because Tobias was going to hit the open market at a time where there was a bunch of suitors. And this offseason, there are scant few teams that actually have cap space. It's like the Orlando's teams like that, that are scraping the bottom. So he's really, if he really wants full max money, uh, the only threat he could do that with is with a team that he ostensibly was trying to get out of with the Houston Rockets, like a middle tier team. And while a lot of players of Howard's caliber force trades in these sorts of situations, I wonder if he would run into the same sort of situation in another team. Like, like if you're the Philadelphia 76ers, like a team that I, I could think of as like maybe wanting to take a risk that like they can, that he still has something of the old Harden in him. Are you going to pay him for five years and saddle yourself to a, a 33-year-old James Harden and an injured-ass Joel Embiid as your core? Well, I think I think he does have a fair bit of, you know, really a giant mound of leverage, and its name is Kyrie Irving. Like, what are the Nets going to do if they don't? If they don't re-sign James Harden? And again, unless he's an at like an abject disaster, like if it's very clear he can't be anywhere near the player he has been, then they might have to to go back to the drawing board and figure out who the other star is they could pursue in free agency or trade. But short of that, I, I think he's got them in a place where he's going to end up getting some pretty some pretty real money from the Nets one way or the other. Well, Rob, here's the thing. James Harden at his peak against playoff defenses has been nobody's version of, you know, a messiah. So <laughs> <laughs> this dude right now against the Bucks in the playoffs? That's going to get ugly for him. I'm sorry. Uh, he is going to look really bad, right? Because it's, you know, 20 games in, like, the, the point of emphasis, they're doing it. They're straight up, like, not calling these fouls anymore. And Harden hasn't adjusted his game. And again, physically, he can't just overwhelm in the way that he used to be where this guy was so quick and strong, too. Like, he's still got the strength, you know. <laughs> he's still a pretty hefty guy. <laughs> but he doesn't have that lightning first step anymore. And I wonder if it's going to be there. That's been the noticeable thing, too, about the free throw drawing as we think about what James Harden is going to be in the playoffs. The few nights he's had, like, big free throw performances, they've come against... The Magic, they've come against the Cavs, they've come against the Pelicans, they've come against the Pacers, who are kind of mediocre. He's not having any of these games, really. I, I, you know, Maybe accepting, I think he had 11 free throws against the Warriors. That's about as many drawn fouls as he's been able to get against good teams. Yeah, and just circling back to the leverage point of it, I guess the biggest leverage is basically being like, well, draft somebody because you don't have any draft picks. You're completely pot committed to this core of, of Kyrie, Harden, Durant, for better or worse, which I guess, like, if you think about it from the other side of things, like, this is looking particularly good 
for the Houston Rockets, man. Like, I don't know. I, I've said this before. Like, I don't know if they knew something about his medicals. Uh, I don't know if they just assumed that he could depreciate uh, more quickly because of his off the court activities or what it was. But man, this could be as bad as it got in a darkest timeline situation in a very real timeline as it got for the Nets of old. Like the Nets of old, I mean like five years ago. <laughs> For the record, the Nets are still first place in the East yeah, right they're now. Yeah, <laughs> just want to just want to put that out there. But it does. I mean, it's interesting that they're now in like a race between James Harden's potential decline versus can, as a public and as a nation, we end the pandemic soon enough that Kyrie Irving can get back on the court. Like those two, <laughs> those two lines. There's an intersection point somewhere. Right. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's flip to mine now. Here, I have uh, someone on the other end of the star spectrum. That is Cade Cunningham, who is just starting his career. Um, in particular, I want to talk about him because he struggled at first. I think he was something like one for twenty-one from three, and all of a sudden, you had people coming out of the woodwork saying, like, "Oh, maybe he's a bust, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. I think he was <laughs> exacerbated by just like how awesome Evan Mobley has looked. Yeah, and so there was sure. like the clear like, oh, you missed. And I think people were starting to get P- PTSD of uh, LaMelo and James Wiseman over LaMelo, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, he's coming off a game last night against the Heat as we're recording this where he didn't look particularly good. I think all of his shooting numbers were, were bad. I think he was one for seven from three again. But I watch him and he looks so goddamn solid. Like he just makes a lot of smart plays. He's very calm. He's very observant. And he just seems like the type of guy, if we're going to like we're going to like celebrate Evan Mobley for his two-way play and just his headiness and like all that stuff. I mean, Cade has that stuff to the point where like if Mobley is going to be out for longer than they say, which is like what about a month, I think is the original timeline. Um, it's possible that Cade could, could vault both him and Scotty Barnes into the rookie of the year conversation pretty quickly here. Yeah. I watched that game last night. Uh, the Pistons dropped, 74 points in the first half, and Cade looks so comfortable against man-to-man coverages, right? Like, the way that teams want to play pick-and-roll defensively, like, the way that teams are already playing him, like, he's so good at spotting the opening and getting it out quick because he's pretty big for his position and his vision is there. The Heat switched to a zone defense in the second half and basically confused the shit out of everybody on Detroit. Used that to come back and then Tyler Hero started playing like he was Michael Jordan and, you know, that was it. But what I noticed was the zone made Cade hesitant, right? Like he was questioning what his first move, what his first read should be. And he had a couple of just bad turnover passes against what we think is probably one of the two or three best defensive teams in the league. So that doesn't really bother me at all. Like the idea that Cade Cunningham couldn't eventually figure out how to play against zone defenses, that, that'd be ridiculous. I'm like, Justin, I, I think his feel and understanding of the game is just at a ridiculous level for somebody who's like 10 games into his NBA career. It's it's like nothing I've ever seen before. So I'm bullish on the guy. I think his jump shot is obviously going to come around. Only thing that, you know, to, to concern, concern troll, I just want to see him be more aggressive, just be more willing to take guys one-on-one to post up smaller guys to like look for a shot more. That's all. I think that could be a career long conversation. I think we're going to be talking for a long time about 
can Cade impose his will in these specific situations? Is that something he's willing to do as a player? Maybe, maybe not. But as far as the initial reaction out of the gate to his quote-unquote struggles, it always rang a little hollow to me because he seemed like exactly the player he was advertised as, which is a guy who doesn't have standout athleticism, who's going to have to get by on skill and guile and patience and his ability to read the floor. And he was already showing all those things. It was just a matter of kind of getting up to speed with the game. I think that's that's where we've seen him kind of progress as the season has gone. But I think your opinion of him will probably vary a little bit night to night because so far he's kind of oscillated and he's, he's walking that line between being a savvy, calming presence on the game and being so subtle in some other games that he his presence feels a little bit too invisible to be a superstar type guy. So I can understand... Mm-hmm. I can understand some of the skepticism in that regard. Yeah, and to your earlier point about just like the the jump off the page athleticism and how he doesn't have that, that was like my one thing that I was a little, if you want to concern troll about, like it isn't the shot. It's more like breaking guys off the dribble in order to get to the cup. Like, is he going to have that like just explosive first step? Is he going to have the shiftiness in order to get by guys? There's one play where Bam switched onto him and Bam didn't feel like all that. I mean, Bam's one of the best defenders in the league, but like he didn't feel all that worry that, that, Cade was trying to get by him. The flip side of that, of course, is just like how physical Cade already is. And to Waz's earlier point, like he's huge. And uh, it shows on both ends of the court. One, like he, another play, he went up against Bam in order to get a layup. And he was just like completely unmoved by this like complete boulder of a human. And you also see like the length that he has on the defensive end and how much he could disrupt things. He got a little bit uh, too swipe happy in this game against the Heat, where I think he had four fouls like midway through the third and had to sit for a long time. Um, but like, he just has tools, man. I, I just, I just like the package and like, I wouldn't be surprised if the more people are exposed to him, one, they get to see the nuance and the beauty of like some of the things that he's doing. And two, as time goes on, uh, he starts to put up big numbers. He had a triple double the other night, those type of games that get him more at the forefront of the rookie of the year conversation. By the way, the stuff that we're talking about that he might be deficient in is like 0.001% of NBA players excel at, right? right I right. think we watched Luca in the first round last year where he was consistently for like 80% of the game getting past Clipper defenders. Even when they switched, when they switched different guys or they pressed up on him, he was getting to the rack and getting past guys off the dribble. Then sometimes later in the fourth quarter, you know, they throw Kawhi on him and it wasn't happening. And we think Luka Doncic is literally stamped for the Hall of Fame, right? <laughs> so these things that this guy might be deficient at, we're talking about the greatest players in the world not being world-class at it. I think if he can master all the things that are already strengths and, you know, Detroit's front office can put together the kind of pieces that complement what he does, you know, that takes it to a different level. Because it's stuff like, when you think about Steph, again, another guy who is all-world in everything that he does— Having somebody as complimentary as Draymond Green, like, means everything, right? It means when they do that hard double, there's a guy who not only understands what Steph is going to do off the ball when he gives it up, but, like, can attack four and three, right? And make the right decision consistently. And be somebody who can guard fives on the other end. You know, like, it's about getting the complimentary guys that – make your strengths amplified. So 
I'm I'm into Cade right now. And that's really what the Pistons don't have right now. And one of the reasons why him not being aggressive in certain situations feels so stark, because it's like when you're playing next to Sadiq Bey and Isaiah Stewart and Jeremy Grant, like these, are, <laughs> I think these guys could, could or already do fill roles pretty adequately, but <laughs> they're not. Isaiah Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> Beef stew. Uh, they're not, are you saying uh, he's a little aggressive? Oh. <laughs> I, I, I refuse to disparage Isaiah Stewart. Good player. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, none of those guys are anyone's idea of an assertive NBA star. And so if Cade isn't that, and he's tabbed as that by default by being a number one pick, that's kind of where that conversation comes from. But we haven't seen the end of, of that. We haven't seen the end of the Luka comparisons to, to Waz's point, in part just because that combination of size and shiftiness, that, that's the whole thing. And he doesn't even have the shot to play off of yet in the way that Luka does. Like Everything Luka creates is based off the threat of the step back and the threat of the floater. Cade isn't operating with those tools yet, and he's still getting past guys. So I think I think that bodes really well for what he could ultimately be. Speaking of supporting cast in Detroit, I am I'm flirting with the take that Frank Jackson is actually better than Killian Hayes. Oh boy. <laughs> Not the most flirtatious thing I've ever heard. And I've yeah, heard a lot of them. Save, yeah. save it for, save for your mismatched guest appearance. Put that before <laughs> KOC directly. I don't want to, I don't want to rebuff that. I will say Frank Jackson rocking a stupendous porn oh. mustache right now. It's it's really good. Um, a work of art. Right. That's a that's a good place to to pivot here to our last our dessert portion of the evening to our takes. Um, Waz, you want to lead us off? I have a, a, a feeling that you might have something ready to go here. <sighs> Westbrook, man, um, get him out of here. Uh, he, <laughs> send him to the bench. I'm sorry, he's just. Like, he has made absolutely no attempt to do something different than he's all, always done. Like, none whatsoever. And I get that LeBron has missed 11 games already at this point, which is a crazy amount of games to have missed. And so I get that he's probably had to do a lot of the bad rust stuff, but I'm just like, look, if you're going to be this dude who only does this specific thing, the Lakers might as well just move him to the bench unit and bringing it, bring in a dude who is more complimentary to what Bron and AD are doing. Save for that, like it's not going to work, right? Like he's so sloppy with his passes. The, the fact that him and AD have literally no synergy in pick and roll. They have no chemistry. There's no juice. There's no pop to their pick and roll actions. Um, that's a red flag to me. And so if he's just going to do his, you know, head down, dribble, 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 only pass when absolutely necessary, turn the ball over. You know, the other day I said Russ's passes were less accurate than Ryan Leaf. Like, if, like, if he's going to be that dude, he needs to do that against lesser players in bench units. Because right now, it's just plain ugly. I have a follow-up. Um, <laughs> who, is, who is the player on the Lakers roster who is more complimentary to what LeBron and AD are doing? Like, who, who is your dream replacement in the starting lineup for us? I think literally anybody. If you want to put... Like, if you want to put Ellington, if you want to put Monk, if you want to put whoever yeah. you want, like everybody is more complimentary. If you just be like, all right, Bron, you're going to do the lion's share of the ball handling now, right? Like 
I know Braun like got sick and tired of doing the point guard thing the very first season where they had AD, but it worked. <laughs> That's the thing. Like it worked. They were like, you know, 50 and 20 or something ridiculous like that before the bubble happened. Um, I get it. He's older. He sustained more injuries. But this whole letting Russell Westbrook be the engine of what they're doing, it's, it's totally not working. Not working at all. And I think it raises the question of even if they don't do any of this in the regular season, like maybe they just want to ride it out with Russ uh, to save LeBron's legs to, you know, we're, we're going to be a lower Western Conference seed. Maybe we'll be in the play-in again, whatever. We're going to deal with it. The question for me is when it comes down to it in the playoffs and a team is just exposing Westbrook and really attacking that matchup and really exploiting him, does Frank Vogel have the political capital to not play him for a fourth quarter, to not play no. him to close a game? Is that, is that even a thing that's on the table as a possibility? No. Absolutely not. <laughs> but can I rebut like quickly the regular season part of it all? Yeah. Because it seems to be like established just inside information. There are enough Lakers like insiders saying this that it's like a canon at this point that the reason why they went after Russ was specifically to save LeBron during the regular season to get them to the point where they would have home court advantage or or just like have their legs in order to be better in the playoffs to avoid what happened last year. If that was the thinking, why would you target Russell Westbrook, who is off injured and over the past two seasons, a particularly slow starter to the point where he admitted after this Knicks game that I tend to ramp up over the course of the season. And like, while they couldn't predict that LeBron would have his injuries early on, like, why would you even get him of all people to serve that role? Like every time I watch the Lakers game, I'm just like, isn't, wouldn't it help just to have depth? to get through the regular season. Look at what the Wizards are doing with most of that depth. They are just racking up regular season wins. And if you just had bodies around Anthony Davis and like, I just wonder if this team would not be better off for it. And like, obviously the buddy healed uh, alternate timeline is well established as well. But like, it seems like speaking of DeMar DeRozan, he was talking pretty recently about how he expected to go to the Lakers before the Lakers signed Russell Westbrook or traded for Russell Westbrook. <sighs> and and completely like got rid of that and he ended up with the Bulls. Like, let's think of an alternate timeline where instead of Russ, the Lakers have Buddy Heald and potentially DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Kuzma and KCP and Montrez Harrell, any of these guys that they ended up keeping. Like, that's a really freaking good team. It's a really great team in the regular season in order to rack up wins, which is, especially, is this specifically what you're trying to do here. It makes no sense. That's the, that's the saddest part of the Russ thing. It's like... The Buddy Heald deal was there out in the atmosphere. Everybody was like, yeah, that's probably going to happen. And I think the exchange was going to be maybe KCP. It was like... It's like KCP and Kuz or something, or Kuz and, and Montrez. Or yeah, it wasn't some incredible haul. So they would have still retained some level of perimeter defense. Like, people have talked a lot of shit about Kyle Kuzma throughout the course of the, course of the years. But he made himself into a lunch pail, gritty player. Like, grinded on defense, switched out on fours, guarded perimeter wing type of guys, spot up from three. Like, you know, the exact type of person you need next to LeBron James, right? So, KCP, same kind of thing. Obviously not as big as Kuzma, but the same deal. Like, I shoot, I guard the hell out of people. I'm very complimentary to LeBron. So... You get to keep a few of those kinds of guys, add more elite shooting, 
which opens up things for LeBron and AD's pick and roll game. No brainers. And then for possession soaking, you bring in DeMar DeRozan, who's like actually good at this. <sighs> this is depressing. <laughs> Um, all right, let's uh, let's maybe pivot to somehow maybe a more depressing sort of situation because my take here is that I think the Houston Rockets might be the worst team of all time. <laughs> <laughs> they are currently one in sixteen. They have a sub one hundred winning percentage. Uh, they only have to get over hundred in order to beat the mighty Charlotte Bobcats of the two thousand eleven two thousand twelve season. Uh, they finished seven and fifty nine with a one hundred nine win percentage, but. I can only see this situation getting worse before it gets better because one, Steven Silas, apparently, according to reports today, is on the hot seat, which could just force a change of, of, of coaching and maybe just like disrupt everything and just bring everything, make everything worse. Absolutely insane. Is. Absolutely insane that he would be fired. That that he would be, well, yeah. just that he would be held accountable for anything that's happening over the last two seasons as if he was the one who pushed James Harden out the door or he was the one who put together a roster of a bunch of 19 and 20-year-olds that, at least by my eye, is doing exactly what the Rockets want them to do, which is go through the hard knocks of development in a really sloppy way and lose lots of games. I guess the the counter to that is, was he hired specifically to coach a developmental team or was he hired by the previous regime before uh, Stone took over in order to make sense of a Harden-Westbrook team? And so I could see as, as the GM there being like, I actually just want my own guy. And if this guy isn't doing a good job, this is my motivation to get him fired. So that would be my counter to that. But yeah. the other part of... The other part of this is I also wonder for how long the veterans who are playing the lion's share of the minutes on this team are going to continue to do so. Because as we've seen throughout the history of time, throughout basketball, as the results start to get worse, the vets play less, they get injured, or they get traded to flip for more assets. And so there's a timeline here, like a very quick one. This could happen very soon where the young guys play more and make more mistakes and the results get worse. So like, I think there's a very clear pathway to this being the worst team of all time. That is my take. How long do you think it'll take before the Rockets win their second game? <laughs> That's a great question. Do you have the schedule up here? Let's let's pull this up real quick. Oh god. Okay, so next up they have the Bulls and then the Hornets. I think we can chalk those up as losses, but then they have a nice little home and home against the Oklahoma City Thunder. How do we feel about their chances there? I mean, right now the Thunder are better. So oh, they're so much better. So much better. They lost to the Thunder a couple of days ago, too. So I mean, it's not a it's not a surefire win. They do have the the uh, Magic, who I think net rating wise are almost as bad as the Rockets. So if they're going to get a couple wins here, if they're going to really stack the standings, uh, their win column in the standings. I think this would be the time. Yeah. If they can't get a win between now and December 5th, which again is two games against Oklahoma City, then they have Orlando and New Orleans. If they can't win one of those, we could be staring down like a one and 25 start pretty soon. <laughs> Which, you know, which will bring me to something that I've I've been grinding an axe on the internet for the last, like, five days about the John Wall situation. Justin just said this is the worst team probably in the history of the NBA. So how can you tell me that John Wall can't play for this team? It just doesn't make any sense. And all these fucking dorks on the internet talking about 
well, he's being played $40 million not to do it, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, guys, like, y'all don't understand the optics of this shit. When players show up somewhere, they're expected to try. Like, let's use Ben Simmons, for example, who we've killed, rightfully so, on this show. He shows up to camp and he's hot-dogging it and just not giving any effort. Doc Rivers is like, get the hell out of my practice, whatever. If he shows up to a game and does exactly the same thing, we say, rightfully, we'd say, yo, what the hell are you doing? You're not holding up your end of the bargain. We're not going to want to hear, well, this is what's in the best interest of me and my future of sabotaging things and ending up on another team. We say, yo, show some professionalism. Um, we tell people that we're coming here to try to win every single game. That's what we tell players to try to do. So Houston Rockets, you're going to stink anyway. Why is Adam Silver allowing them essentially to do what the player equivalent would be to show up to a game and not try? Like, that shit is unacceptable. Like, you can't tell me John Wall can't get minutes on this team. That's why nobody gives a shit about our regular season. That's why nobody could be bothered to watch any of these fucking regular season games because the commissioner's office have allowed people to cheapen the product, to bastardize this shit and make it be like, nobody should give a fuck about this. That's why John Wall doesn't have to play. Ultimately, this doesn't matter. We're not trying to win. We don't care. We don't give a fuck how it looks. We don't care about the optics. And that's what teams do. Like, people telling me, like, well, John Wall's not entitled to playing time. Duh, I know that. But you can't watch this team and credibly tell me that he can't play for them. Get minutes over DJ Augustin. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Um. Remember when Anthony Davis was forced to play in New Orleans? Like, what happened over the past two years where now it's, like, completely acceptable? But guess what? They, he kind of wasn't, though. They did some really funky thing with... Remember, they were doing Anthony Davis, all-NBA player, clear all-star, fringe MVP candidate, is now playing 20 minutes a game. Well, because... I think the, the conspiracy theory was the league leaned on New Orleans to, to at least get him to play him. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what happened. Maybe they just but like guess what, Jerry, when you guys decided you didn't want to trade him because you were hard rocks, you can't just have this little middle ground here. Right. right. Like that was the point of trying to force a trade. It's like, all right, if you have any integrity, you have to play me, thereby ruining your draft picks. But again, everybody has to participate in if I'm here, if I'm showing up, if I'm a team, I play my best players. If I'm a player, I play as hard as I can. Like, why is this so hard to understand? Well, especially in this case, I think there's a pretty strong argument, having seen the alternative, that playing John Wall is a good developmental choice for the Rockets. Like, a guy who can give them structure, who can run offense, a guy who knows how to play NBA basketball, that seems super helpful in this context. Yeah, seems like that would help a bunch of young guys who know nothing about playing quality NBA basketball, but, you know, stats and ping pong balls and, you know, gaming the system. People seem to think this shit is admirable on the internet, but whatever. $44.3 million John Wall is making for sitting on his ass. That's not a dream. I don't know what is, man. (laughs) It's all I want to do with my life. Invest in some Bitcoin with that money. Uh, Rob, do you want to go with your take? So the more I think about it, the more 
I'm, I'm coming around to the idea that the most important developmental project in the NBA is whether Bam Adebayo can ever get comfortable taking intermediate shots. Like if he can ever score at all between three and 15 feet or really outside of three feet, I think it complete it could completely change the the face and the scope and the competitive field of the NBA because when you look at the Heat, that's a team that if Bam is really good, like superstar level good, they could be contenders for a really long time. And if he's anything short of that, I think they're going to feel pretty old pretty quickly between Lowry and Butler and PJ Tucker and all these veterans on which they've come to rely. That just has me zeroing in so much on Every time Bam gets the ball at the free throw line and the defense is sagging off of him, what is he going to do? What can he do? Especially because this season, the answer is miss 70% of his shots from three to 10 feet. That's not going to cut it after he showed some promise in that regard last season. And so I have my my eye on the heat long-term as one of the teams that could be a contender for the next five years if Bam is really good. And if not, maybe we'll have to uh, have some hard conversations about them by year two or three of that timetable. And he's got to want to take him. I, I feel like Bam... Huge part of it. He takes so much pride in being the guy that does all the little things right and plays with a huge motor. I think he takes so much pride in that aspect of the non-glamorized portions of the game that he doesn't take as much pride in shit like 16-footers. Like, that's going to make your team way better. And somebody needs to sort of, you know, drill that into him. Like, yo, you willingly taking these 14-footers, 12-footers, 16-footers, these intermediary shots is going to take your team to the freaking moon. And that's going to be the next step for him. Well, especially now that we've seen the Heat have kind of moved away from the BAM at the elbow hub offense. They're running a lot of other different stuff now. Um, His assists have plummeted as a result of that. I think he's basically averaging half of what he usually does. He needs to find other ways to express offensive value. And... It's a little it's a little beneath him in some ways, but having like a little Tristan Thompson-esque push shot when he's rolling down the lane, I think that's important. I think that's like unreasonably important to the future of the Heat is whether he can develop that shot. Is this a take? Is it not a take? <laughs> it's, kind of, yeah. it's kind of a temporary take. It's a little on the mild Skip side. Skip Bayless would be disgusted by you right now, bro. This is how you get out of like the you DeMar DeRozan conversations right months now. later is because you just stuff so much nuance in the bird here that uh, you don't really step out on the ledge. Well, for the record and for safety reasons, never stuff your bird. Always cook your stuffing separately. Very important. Don't be don't be spreading misinformation on this podcast, Justin. Speak for yourself. I must oh, keep stuffing no. my birds. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, let's uh, let's end it there. Uh, thank you for Big Kerm, Jonathan Kerm on production for filling in this week. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to one and all, and we will be back next week. We'll see you then. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. 
I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. 